We're in the book of Jude. It's a little two-part, a real brief two-parter on the book of Jude. Um, last, second to last book of the Bible. Um, 25 short verses, but man, they, 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 they go deep. Um, once again, these, 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 the teaching last week and this week, they're really only scratching the surface. So uh, recommend you go home and begin to dig more into the book of Jude. Um, you know, I... <laughs> Yeah, I titled last week's message, Heed the Warnings, and, and I, I know that doesn't sit very well with all of us. Warning, warnings, warnings aren't always, don't always feel good, you know? Um, it's like this, so uh, when I was a children's pastor down in Santa Barbara, I, for one day I decided to do a little object lesson, or, or maybe a big object lesson, and what I did is I brought my KTM 950 Adventure uh, motorcycle, this it, kind of like a dirt bike, but even bigger and just meant to go the distance. And I brought it and I put it right up on stage. And so all the kids are kind of like ooh and aahing this orange and black, huge, huge bike, knobby tires and big aluminum bags on the side. And they were just kind of like, okay, what's Jeremy going to do with this? What's the object lesson of this? And I got the owner's manual and I began to read through the owner's manual. And I read things like, you know, oil must be changed every 3,000 miles. Uh, during the break-in cycle of the engine, you must not exceed 6,000 RPMs. Um, all these kind of rules and regulations, and the kids are like going, what, like, what, are, you, what are you doing, Jerry? We want to hear the fun stuff, but no, like that's the thing, is before you can have the fun, you really have to know the boundaries within which, which how the engineer designed and created this bike. And so after I gave them the, you know, the kind of boring, the warning signs, I got to tell them about the adventures that I went on this motorcycle. I told them about my, my 5,000 mile road trip going all the way out to Louisiana, up through Colorado, trying to hit dirt in each state of the US or that I, I went through, um, some mishaps, some the fun parts. Of it. And, and so, yes, we're designed for adventure. Yes, God has an amazing things for us. Yes, we're, we're destined for eternity for those who believe in, and confess Jesus as our Lord and Savior, but there's also the warnings that we must heed within life. And so that is what the book of Jude is focusing on. Um, he, he's, he's talking specifically about these false teachers that are going to come in and amongst the church. And so really the book of Jude is aimed at warning the church against these false teachers that had come. Second Peter warns about the false teachers that will come. Now Jude's like, they're, they're here and even now, that was written 2,000 years ago. That, this is even more important for us to study and know in these times. Let's pray, and we're going to jump in. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord. We thank you for um, your message that is, it rings as clear today as it did when it was written by Jude and authored by you, Lord. Uh, so we thank you. We pray that you'd teach us this morning. Shows how we ought to live, the things that we ought to do, and the things that we need to take warnings and be cautious about. Uh, teach us this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Jude uses a lot of terms like this. He's going to, as he's talking about the false teachers, he, he's going to talk, the passages that we're studying today, he's going to say a lot of these people or these, these men. It kind of backs up to Jude of verse 4. It says, For these certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. And so he's going to begin to talk about these certain men, these teachers that had come into the church and they were 
very much implanted and that they're, the, the warnings that are be there, there for them. And he's going to talk over and over about these people. And then he's going to do that. He's going to pull a lot of Old Testament passages and other Second Temple uh, Jewish literature to, to use to make his point, to emphasize his point. Uh, he quotes uh, uh, a book we no longer have. It's been lost to history called The Assumption of Moses when he talks about um, the Archangel Michael and uh, contesting over the body of Jude. Uh, he's gonna, in this section, he's going to talk about the book of Enoch. And once again, I want to infer that these, things are, these, these extra-biblical books are helpful, but we don't consider them scripture, and there's reasons for that. So where I left off last week was some of the names were dropped uh, in Old Testament examples of impending just, uh, judgment. Jude 11, or Jude, yeah, Jude 11, or Jude 1, verse 11, whatever you want to say it, uh, says this, says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. So he brings up three Old Testament characters and he relates them to these um, teachers that have come into the church. First, the, the man was Cain. And Cain, we know from an Old Testament example, hopefully you read those passages that I, I mentioned last week, but Cain was a man who chose the incorrect path. God came to him. He said, hey, sin is knocking at your door. And if you choose to go down that path, it's not going to be good. And Cain chose instead to go down that path. And he hated his brother so much that he, he ended up killing him. And Cain was the first man who, who then began to step outside of the boundaries that God has, had created men and women for. He says that he took a, a second wife, which was outside of what had God had set for marriage, that marriage is between one man and one woman within a, within a covenant marriage bond. And so Cain was the first man to leave that. So the warning then is for these teachers, they've, they're choosing their own immoral way. They're, they're, they're hating in fact, they're killing people and they're going outside of what God has set within the boundaries. Balaam was a man who was characterized by greed. His intent was not just to minister by serving God, but to gain a reward uh, to minister, in a sense, on behalf of money. He saw the people that he, he saw the people of Israel and instead of cursing him like, the, like he was paid to, God used him and created a, and caused a blessing four times over the nation of Israel. But he also eventually ended up leading uh, the nation of Israel into different sexual practices that were outside of God's boundary as well. And so Balaam, we, we see that the, the Balaam and how they characterized by these teachers, they're guilty of giving advice that led to immorality. Then we have Korah, and he spoke contrary to the ordinance of God. He spoke against the word. Uh, he led, Korah was the first one to lead a rebellion against God's ordained word and authority. And so all these three men, they were self-serving. They led others astray by, the, by their teachings, by their prophecies, they were, by their way that they led other people. So we need to take caution as we look at these teachers. So what will come, or what is to come with these people? It's the question we get answered in verse 12 and 13. So he says this, speaking about these people. These, spots, these are spots in your love feast while they feast on you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water carried about by the winds. 
late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, can you say Jude with 100% clarity calls out what these people are? I mean, he, he holds no punches in a sense. And let's break these down because some of these get lost in translation in a sense. Like I, I read Wandering Stars years ago and I'm th- so thankful. I, I, I like to write with a pencil. I have a wide margin Bible. Next to, that rage, or next to the Wandering Stars, I had a question mark. Like what does Wandering Stars mean? You know, so that's a penciled in question mark in my Bible. Well, as in studying for this book of Jude, I got to erase that question mark. It's no longer a question mark in, in, in my head. And so hopefully I can rem- remove that question mark out of yours. But let's start with these hidden spots or uh, these hidden rocks in your love feasts. Uh, sometimes the ESV translated hidden reefs. He says there are spots in these love feasts or rocks in your love feasts. What does that mean? Well, the love feast referred to the early believers' practice of eating a full meal in connection with the celebrations of, our, of the Lord's Supper. And so they would get together, they would bring in food, and they would share. It was like a, a potluck, in a sense, in the early church. And what happened if you were about ready to take that bite of that beautiful-looking you know, piece of sandwich, only to find that there was a rock hidden underneath, and as you break down, your tooth crunches off, Right? It's like when, you go to, when I go to the beach with my kids and, and we've, we've prepared a meal, we're all ready, we've got our, you know, our picnic for the, at the beach and our kids are running around, they're having fun and it's like, all right, come, come back, let's, let's have a little food and you go to eat your sandwich and you don't realize that the kids are running around or shaking a towel or something and you go to bite in that nice, yummy sandwich and you just get that in your teeth. It's, it's the worst. Looks so good, but then hidden under the surface was these little pieces of sand. You know, I went to UCSB and, and, and my senior year, it's like each year you, you kind of move up in your, the place where you live. You get better and better. So by your senior year, I, I was living at the end of uh, Del Playa at the, the, the beach side. And it was, uh, I had a view overlooking the ocean. Um, there was an empty lot. We were, we were on the mountain side of Del Playa. So there was an empty lot and I could see the beach from my second story window. So every morning I'd wake up and I'm like, how's the surf out there? I mean, it was a great, it was a great spot to live in a house with nine other Christian guys. And I can te- honestly tell you that there was a couple mornings when Devereaux was breaking at a perfect shoulder height and glassy, and I may or may not have ditched class to go out there. <laughs> but Devereaux had a, had, a, had a warnings too, because hidden underneath the surface, right where, right where you get on the board and you take off, there's a, there's a little reef there. And at a low tide, and if the waves are big enough, that reef will open up right underneath you. You think you caught the right spot, but you, that reef opens up right there underneath you, and it'll take you out or it'll take your board out. So the danger is evident, uh, is not evident on the surface, but there's hidden danger underneath, and that's what these false teachers were. There are spots or hidden rocks or hidden reefs in their love feasts. And these love, and so, so it says, while they feast uh, with you without fear, serving only themselves. And so these teachers would come in and they would gather and they would eat with them and it says while they feast, and I want to say on you without fear, you don't even know that you're being eaten. They, they, see, the, these shepherds, these false teachers were using the flock as their source of food. They feast on you without fear. 
It says also of them, he says, they are clouds without water carried about by the winds. Clouds without water. They look like there's so much to offer. Life-giving water, these clouds, oh man, all the, the water that it holds, but it doesn't end up raining. This year, I think we prayed for a little bit uh, less rain, right? Had, I, had we talked about this last year, when we never felt like the years of drought or years of lack of water, when we'd see the clouds move over, you're like, oh, please, please, will it rain? Now it's like, it's raining in June? What in the world? Yesterday, it, our house was cold enough that we had a fire, that we put a fire in the fireplace. Like, in June, what in the world? I mean, it was, it was nice, it was cozy. But these clouds, they, they look like there's so much to offer, life-giving, but in, 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 they end up being empty, nothing of value, especially nothing of eternal value. They lack content. And then he says these, this, he says they're like late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Now, is that tree going to produce any fruit? No. I mean, he's pretty... That's pretty. Late autumn trees without fruit. So they haven't given fruit in the autumn season, the fall season. Twice dead because in the spring and fall they haven't produced fruit. And so because they haven't done that, they've been pulled up by the roots. No fruit is, is has, or will ever grow from these trees. We, have a, we had a holly tree in my backyard and uh, it, it let off the worst little berries and like the little leaves were, were prickly. So if you walked around the backyard without this, you know, without shoes, you'd get prickled by the holly tree. So I was like, okay, holly tree's coming out. So last year I pulled out the holly tree, but I didn't have a stump grinder. So the, the stump's still there. Well, lo and behold, because the roots are still on the ground, these little, it's starting to shoot up these spruce, these little, little, um, little twigs and stuff. And those root and those little leaves are trying to make a comeback. So I had to like take it out again. Late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. Then it says, raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame. No, there's no healthy movements within their church, at least nothing that's moving them forward in their walks. In fact, there's only just turmoil within the church. There's a restlessness that's happening there. Years ago, as a, as a, a Santa Barbara Beach lifeguard, um, Got to play with their equipment, and we had this this um, um, kind of a it's it's like um, it's like a kayak, but it's called a surf ski. It's a really really hard thing to sit on. It's awkward. There's, there's just no balance. It's got little rudders, foot pedals for the rudder in the back, and you you paddle it. And so I thought, hey man, I'm going to go from Tower Five, and I'll go down over to Tower Two on Ledbetter Beach, which takes me past the Santa Barbara Harbor. And as I'm going past the Santa Barbara Harbor, it's a sunny day, and I can see some movement underneath me, and I was like, what is that? So you have kind of the, the waves kind of coming off off the breakwater and coming back, and I was like, oh, it must be, you know, as the waves kind of doubling up, there must be some shadows on the ground. Next thing I know, it, a shark swims up next to me, thrashes its tail, and I, I did not want to paddle back. I paddled to Tower 2, and I'm like, can you guys take the, paddle, the surf ski back? I don't want to go back. That's that raging waves. There's nothing, there's no forward heavy, there's no forward healthy movement within the churches. And then that question mark that I had in my Bible, the wandering stars. The wandering stars from whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. You know, I think the ancients were, were far greater in tune with the movements of the stars, with the movements of the constellations than we are. Modern man, we've moved away from it. Uh, uh, 
we, we, we've, we've moved away from that because we're just technology and everything else. We don't need the stars to guide us. We just have iPhones now, right? Well, for the ancients, they were very in tune with, with the movements of the stars. They were very in tune with where the stars were at, with the seasons, how that equated to the harvest. In fact, there was, there was those who would um, begin to pray to the gods or pray to the stars, and it was a form of worship. Uh, Deuteronomy 4 has this warning. It says, Beware lest you raise your eyes to the heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the host of heaven, that you not be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them. These things that the Lord your God has allotted to the peoples under the whole heaven. They were created things and put in the heavens for signs and for seasons, but they weren't gods. And as you look at ancient temple sites that we're now just starting to to, to learn more about like ancient sites like Gobekli Tepe in, in, in Turkey, they, they had an astounding understanding of the movements of the stars. But the one thing they didn't understand was sometimes why these things would fly through the night sky, like shooting stars, like meteors, or how the planets fit in with the movement of the constellations it holds. Those were called wandering stars. They didn't fit the broadcasted movement of the stars. Planets were not part of the orchestrated movements of the stars. So tomorrow I'm taking our youth group up and we're going to be going to summer camp. And one of my favorite things to do at the night, in the night with the students is to go up and look at the night sky. And it blows my mind to think about this night sky is what we've been looking up at for thousands of years. It's the same stars that Abraham was told to go out of his tent and look up and try to count the stars. The same stars we see in our night sky. And the one star that's the most important, and I try to point out to my student, is the North Star, Polaris. And the importance of of how important that star is to us, because it's around that star that before we had iPhones, before they had the sexton, that that the ancients knew where the North Star was so they could navigate. I think I have a, a slide up here. It's just a little cheat sheet, especially for the students that are going off to camp tomorrow. Uh, so a fun thing to do is you find the Big Dipper and you take those last two Dipper stars and you aim those and that the first star in the night sky as you aim those things up is the North Star Polaris. So as a kid, what I did is I took my mom's SLR camera, you know, single-edged reflex camera with a film in it, and I, I, I took pictures of the night sky and I'd hold the trigger open for a couple minutes and just let the stars move within that. And I remember coming, getting those pictures back two weeks later because, you know, you got to develop the film, all that stuff. Getting a, goes, and, and seeing the movement of the stars and how cool that was. But there was one star in the night sky that didn't move, and that's Polaris. That's the North Star. And so what it is, is when you, when you set your compass, when you set your bearing, you want to know where the north, where true north is, where the North Star is. If you don't, you're going to end up with errors. If you were going to sail on a sailboat from here all the way out to the Hawaiian Islands, you set your course, and if you're half a degree wrong in your course and your bearing, you're going to be 20 miles off. If you set yourself a couple degrees, you're going to miss Hawaii and never see it. And so although it's a, a star in the night sky, although you can pick and choose any of those stars in the night sky, there's only one that is accurate and will, will give you directions. Anything else is moving. Any other planets that you know, come in through the night sky, those things are moving. And if you set your bearing to those, you're going to be off. 
It's a disaster if you follow a guide that isn't fixed. You see what he's saying? These wandering stars, they're guides, but they're not fixed to anything. It's that same disaster that will follow in our own lives if we allow the culture to guide our principles, our boundaries. It's the same guide that will, uh, if, if we let our feelings take that fixed point in our life, and how do I feel about this? Grateful to my time at, with, with Camp Crusade for Christ, um, one of the early analogies they taught was the train. Train, you have, a, a, you have f- the, the, um, the engine is, the, is facts, the, the passenger cars are, are, are faith, and then that caboose is your feelings. If you let your feelings guide, there's no, there's no engine, there's no motion behind it. But if we elect fact and the facts of the word of God, we can look at archaeology, we can look at the prophecy, we can look at all the statements within it. If you let those facts and then you let your faith fall in your facts, then you let your feelings fall along with that. And the second we start following our feelings, the second we start following our culture, we begin, to, we begin to follow things that are wandering stars. And we need to set our, our, our focus, we need to set our bearings on the unchanging word of God. Then 14 and 15. It's another strange passage. It says, Now it was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, he prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that the ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So the question is, where, where and when did Enoch say this? And who is Enoch? Well, we know Enoch is found in Genesis chapter 5. The man named Enoch, he was uh, the seventh from Adam, in a sense. So it says Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalel, Jared, and Enoch. So he's the seventh from Adam. Uh, not, to be concerned, or not to be confused with Cain's son, who he also named as Enoch, and that's found in Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. So this Enoch that Jude is referring to is the seventh from Adam, and we have a little bit of a a record of what he was like found in Genesis chapter 5. And little is said about him, but he's one of my heroes of the faith. I cannot wait to meet him. This is what is said. It says that Enoch lived 65 years, and he begot Methuselah. And after he begot Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years, and he had sons and daughters, and so all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God, and then he was not, for God took him. Enoch had the testimony of simply walking with God for 300 years. And this is in the pre-Diluvian, this is before the flood. This is a time when wickedness was coming up on the face of the earth. This was a gnarly time to be living in, a gnarly time to simply, that his testimony was he walked with God. He was a rebel to what was going on around him in his culture. And he simply said, I'm going to walk with God. Short life of only 365 years compared to his, his, his descendant or his, his relatives, his son. His son was Methuselah who lived to be 969 years, the Bible says. Interesting fact, his son Methuselah died the same year that the flood came on the world. But Enoch walked with God and then he was not. For God took him. 
We see a picture of a rapture pre-flood with Enoch being taken by God, taken up to heaven. Enoch lived before the first judgment of the earth, before the pre-flood. And he preached a message that was for that time and also for thousands of years later. But how did Enoch live? And what was his life like? We, We want details, right? We want details. Well, Hebrews 11 has a little commentary on what he was like and how he lived. It says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had not taken him. Now, therefore, he was taken, uh, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Enoch was a man who walked by faith. He was a man who pleased God with his life, not depending on what was happening around him. And because of that, God chose to take him out so he would never see death. But the question is, where did Jude get this quote from? Where did did Enoch ever say that? Well, it's found in one of those second temple period writings, also found amongst the Dead Sea Scrolls, and it's from 1 Enoch 1.9. And it was translated by R.H. Charles, and here it is. It says this in the book of Enoch. It says, and behold, he comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they had ungodly committed and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners had spoken against him. It's interesting that Jude chooses to quote one Enoch instead of Old Testament scriptures to make his point. He takes an extra biblical account, an extra biblical historical story, and uses that to say this is what Enoch said during his time period to, at the false preachers. See, Jude, in writing this letter, could have quoted from three Old Testament sources. Jeremiah 25, verses 30 and 31, says, You therefore shall prophesy against them these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth and the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He has entered into judgment with all flesh and the wicked he will put to shame. Put to the sword, declares the Lord. In Isaiah 66, verses 15 and 16. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render anger and and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh those who are and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Zechariah 14.5 And you shall flee to the mountain of my mountains for the valley of mountains shall reach to Azel. And you shall flee as you fled from the earthquakes in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. See, the Jews and Christians of antiquity considered books such as One Enoch important resources for understanding biblical books and their theology. Peter and Jude were of no exception. Now the question I guess then is, what do we do with these extra biblical books? Well, I consider them not scripture, but as a resource. As in my office, I have over 700 books. There's only one Bible 
Well, actually, I have like probably 20 Bibles, but there's only one word of God. The others begin to be commentaries to help you understand the culture and the context, the film, the, the blanks. But as, as Christians, as Harvest Church, we believe in one of the solas, the sola scriptura. That is that the Bible is self-authenticating, clear and rational, uh, that scripture interprets scripture and it's sufficient in the final authority for our lives. That's what we believe at church. And so books of Enoch may be helpful, but they're not scripture. They're not God-breathed. And Jude is interpreting, interesting, the book of Enoch and saying that, that's, that, that this Lord of the Old Testament is actually Jesus now. Michael Heiser says, for Jude, as well as Mark and Paul, uh, this event is transformed into the return of Jesus Christ. By naming Jesus as the one coming with the holy angels, Jude equates Jesus with the God of, of Israel. Jude's citation of one Enoch is, his, highly, is, his, high, is of his efficient strategy for declaring that Jesus is God. The fact that Jesus is God isn't something that was happened hundreds of years later. No, this was set in the early church in the first, within the first uh, century church. And we have a reminder from Mark chapter 8 is what Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man will also be ashamed of when he comes in his glory of his Father with his holy angels. What Jude was saying is that the fall of these false preachers and the teachers is sure just as the judgment of the watchers pre-flood and those who spoke against God before the flood. There's judgment coming. Verse 16, back in Jude, says, These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. So they're grumblers and complainers within the church. Just like in Exodus, in the wilderness wanders, there was grumblers and complainers amongst them, saying that God didn't provide them. God wouldn't provide them. Man, we'd be better off slaves back in Egypt than to be free men out in the wilderness. The God, God's not going not, to provide for us out. That was the, all the, the complaining that was going on out there. And then others, these teachers, they want others to follow in after their own lusts. And this is not new. Uh, there's other Bible passages, too, found in 2 Timothy that warn of these things. Once again, we don't like to necessarily hear the warnings, but they're necessary. 2 Timothy 4 says, For this time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That sounds like the, some of the church today. They don't want to hear the, the warnings. They don't want to hear the, the, the bad stuff. Just give me the good stuff. Just give me the nice stuff that make me feel good about the, who I am and what I'm doing. And then to gain advantage over the week. 2 Timothy 3 says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdening with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Sounds again like the wandering stars. But in this, this part where, where Jude begins to shift from them, these are, the thing, these are the warning signs, the cautions. Now he's going to begin to talk about you. You. And once again, Jude was let, written to a letter to the church as a whole. He, this is a letter to myself. This is a letter to you. 
Verse 17 says, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember these things. When these things begin to happen, Paul, he's saying, remember these things. And he says the words of, he equates the words of the apostles which were spoken needs to be on the same plane as the Old Testament prophecies. That's what he's saying. The words of the apostles in the New Testament are as scripture, of which Jude doesn't include himself in the apostles. He says, verse 18, how I told you that there would be mockers in the last time, sorry, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. So these teachers that come in, that filter into the church, whether they're homegrown, whether they sneak in, they're not just teachers, but they're making a mockery of God. And they're making a mockery of God, and then they're calling other people to walk down that, those, those same roads that they have taken. I mean, the question I have to ask myself is, what happened to denying yourself as part of the Christian faith? What happened to denying ourselves? Well, our culture, our world will say, hey, you do you. Live out your truth. Follow your heart. Hey, this is the one I heard as a kid all the time. If it feels good, do it. You know, that may sound empowering, but it's destructive and downright contrary to Scripture. When my friends lived out the sentiment, if it feels good, do it, some of them ended up in prison and hooked on drugs. I mean, for them, some of those drugs felt really good, so they said, well, this... I might as well do it. Why not? That's what, that's what my culture, that's what my world says. They, were, they followed the wandering stars. Jesus made the clear statement in Luke chapter 9. He says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. As, a, as, as a believers, as, as confessors of Lord Jesus Christ, we are called into denying ourselves to follow after Jesus. Speaking against out of, once again at these teachers, he says, these are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Call them sensual persons means they, they're following after their, their, their senses. They're following after these things in their life that they, that they can experience. They're, and they cause division when they're doing that. They're not seeking unity in the body of Christ. And I think the scariest statement right there is not having the Spirit. Not having the Spirit. I think that's the, the scariest part for people who come to church or maybe grow, grew up in the church who claim the name of Jesus, the, the scariest places to be is when you have Jesus. I have Jesus. He's, you know, Jesus is a little figure doll on my car. I have a little Jesus here. I have a little Jesus there. But does Jesus have you? See, this, they're, they're saying they're, they're sensual persons to cause division not having the Spirit of God. These people claim to be Christians. They claim to be followers of Jesus, but Jesus, in a sense, was not living inside them, and God didn't have that person. That's a dangerous place to be within the church, to think you're heading the right direction, and in a sense, you're denying and you don't even have the Spirit of God living inside of you. So the directions for our life with God, what do we do? 
And now he's, he's given us those green freeway on-ramp signs. Verse 20 says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Now these are the things that we look inward. These are the things we're called to, actions we're called to take and the things we're called to do. We're, we're called to be building up ourselves on our most holy faith. That word is edification. It's being built up. It's what I believe the church is for, what Jesus clearly said the church is for. The church is for the building up of the body of believers, and then those bodies of believers go out and they impact their world and their communities in ways that a pastor or preacher could never do here. That's why we believe here in Harvest Church the solid teaching of the word of God from the pulpit, that you will be built up and know how to go out and face your world and your culture and to bring Jesus into your, the relationships that God has put you in. It's great when students bring their, their friends, their, uh, their non-Christian friends to youth group and they hear me teach, but they're just like, that's just some old bald old guy talking about an old book. But when, they, when, they, when, when the students then begin to share the gospel and say, well, this is what I learned and, and this is how it applies to your life, and, and they begin to, that's when ministry happens. But we're called to build ourselves up, be edifying ourselves, and then praying in the Holy Spirit. These are things that are inward things. And verse 21 says, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. We're to keep ourselves in that place of the love of God. And I love how this Jude has this tension of God keeping us versus we need, how we need to keep ourselves in that as well. You are kept, but also keep yourselves. And you need to keep that place in the love of God and his deep mercy because if we are to look inward, we realize what sinners we are and what need we have of our Savior. And the things that want to creep back up, the temporary desires of our flesh, we need to be reminded now that we've bought with a price and we have an eternal destiny, eternal reality that's waiting for us to set our minds on those things. So now he's going to break it down of what to do with these things. Verse 22 says, and have mercy on those who doubt. And he's going to give three categories of different believers in church and how to respond if they are thinking about these things, if, if the false teaching has begun to crept in. The first category is those who doubt. This is, uh, you need to have a compassionate tenderness for those who have an honest and legitimate questions. If somebody comes to you, if a believer, fellow believer in the church comes and say, says, man, I'm really struggling with this, do you, do you just shoot them down and say, well, that's, you're just being silly? Or do you, say, do you act in compassion and mercy and say, man, that's, that's a good question. Let's take that to the scripture. Let's, let's find an answer for you. And that's maybe these baby Christians within the church who are having these doubts. You know, the man came to Jesus and said, man, will you heal my, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus said, if you have faith, you can. And he says, well, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's that place of coming alongside with someone and saying, hey, what are your questions? How can I help you? How can I encourage you? Then there's the second and third category, and it's found in verse 23. It says, he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. And the third is to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. The second category of out of the fire 
made me, made me think of a, a TV show my wife and I were watching, and there was a, a, a we watched, we love to watch those police car chase shows, um, and there was a, there was a report of uh, three girls had stolen a car, and they had guns in the car, and they were leading these police on this high-speed chase through the city, 90 mile hours through the city. Um, and these, these young teenage girls took a wrong turn. They hit a barricade. Their car flew up in the air, twisted around, landed on, the, on, on its side, and then caught on fire. So these police who had been chasing them all of a sudden arrive at a scene where this car is on fire, and now they gotta have to go into rescue mode to begin to pull these girls out of this burning car. And they, I can tell you what, they, they did it as gently, but they did it harsh. Like it was, they had to snatch them before this car caught on fire. And see, there's, there's some Christians who are beginning to go down this train of fo- following after these false teachers, and we're called to snatch them out of the fire with boldness. If, if someone has begun to be involved with these false doctrines, you, need to, you, you as, a, as a believer need to snatch them out. And maybe these Christians are those who are acting out or practicing what the false teachers taught. And then there's the third category, those who have garments stained by the flesh. You see, they've gone beyond doubt or involvement in false teaching. Now they begin to spread it. And we need to, like Jews said, to show mercy with fear, hating even the garments that are stained by it. And that's, we have to take caution when we begin to reach out to these people. Last week I mentioned a quote from a very well-known pastor. Uh, He was quoted as saying, we have to get away from a text-based faith. There's dangers from that. There's a lot of other dangers in his teachings. I was reading through, um, or listening through his podcast, and he had to say this in his book that he recently wrote. um, He talks about getting away from the Bible, it, it, there's a lot, a lot of things that he said, but he said this, this, this new covenant single command, that's what he's calling it, that the Old Testament's passed away, now we have a new single covenant command. He said it's so brilliant because it's generationally transferable. He says where the old covenant is not generationally transferable, but now we have this uh, new covenant single command. And what was that for him? He said the it is, bottom line is this, he says if it's not good for him, it's sin. If it's not good for her, it's sin. That was his new command that he got from Jesus' new covenant. Hey, if it's not good for you, then it's sin. But what he's doing, he's beginning to erode the what is sin in the first place. Who is the one who gets to set the boundaries of the judgments of sin? Who begins to be the judge of what is good and what is not good? My friends in high school that chose to do cocaine and then do other things, they said, oh, this is good. This must be good. And so he would, this, this pastor, Andy Stanley would say, well, that then it's, if it's good for that person, then it's not a sin. I tell you what, that's, that's dangerous. That's outright mocking God. He had a lot of other things to say, and I think there's a lot of warnings we need to take from Andy Stanley. And I know his books have been used here, and I know his father is Charles Stanley, one of the great icons of the faith, but there's some real warnings with Andy Stanley. So what do we do with all this? What do we do with these 
Jude's warnings, we do this. We know, grow, and show. I encourage you last week, you need to know what you believe and why you believe it. You need to know the warnings. You need to know the boundaries with which God has called us to live. Then you need to begin to grow within those boundaries. He set those boundaries there for a good reason. Begin to grow in your walk with him. Allow your roots to deep, to, to dig into the soil of his word. And then the lastly is show others. No grow and show. The last two verses I've saved because it's like the best closing prayer as a benediction. Because man, we, we can look at the warnings that he has for these false teachers that were there amongst them. We can start to think about the things that are happening in our own culture and man, the availability of podcasts and teachers and teachings, it's just, it's just unending with YouTube and podcasts, all these things. So how do we keep from stumbling? Well, he says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless. We look like bills that, are gonna, that are, 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 might be possibly passed on Tuesday, uh, Senate Bill AB 957, that says if a parent is non-affirming of their child's gender identity, that they could be possibly, that, that's counted in our state books as abuse, the same as physical abuse. So that's Tuesday. See, there's still time to write. So you look at these things and you're like, oh, these things are terrifying. Raising up kids within this culture and context. Like, Lord, are you able to keep us from stumbling? Are you able to present us faultless? How do, how do we do that? And it, I went back to my mind to, to Zion where I took my family last year. And there are some trails, and, and we were on the edge of this, you know, what was a, a little bit of a cliff. And my daughter was a little bit scared. She says, Dad, can I hold your hand? And so I take my daughter's hand and I hold her. Now, has she, had she been the one that slipped and then began to fall, would it be her strength? Or would it be my strength holding her off and keeping her from that cliff? It would be the strength of the Father. The strength of our Father is the one who's able to keep us from stumbling and present us faultless. So let's pray this, out, this verse out as we close up. Lord, we do. We say now to you who are able to keep us from stumbling and you, Lord Jesus, who are able to keep us faultless before the presence of your glory with exceeding joy. Lord, to you alone, our Savior, who alone is wise. Lord, to you alone be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen.